Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in Miami. Today, I'm interviewing Susan Apatow, editor and contributing author, along with Zachary Baron Shemtob of the anthology New York After 9-11, published in 2018 by Fordham University Press. Dr. Susan Apatow is a social psychologist and professor at the City University of New York, where she is a core faculty member of sociology at John Jay College and of psychology at the Graduate Center. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Delighted to have you. So the subject of the book is the aftermath of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. First, as a point of clarification, does it address the aftermath for the country or New York City specifically? Yeah, the book is predominantly focused on New York City. It would have been enormous to have focused on the whole country. And New York itself is so complex that it was, you know, still required, you know, focusing more closely on particular times and particular spheres of life in New York City. Um, But the events in in the whole country and in the world do play a role in New York City. And so they are definitely in the book, but the book is about New York City. So what made you interested in this topic for a book? Well, I'm a lifetime New Yorker. I was born here and... um, I'm very interested in cities. Uh, One of the authors of the book uh, told me that his teacher told him, and he's an architect, that cities are the largest human artifact. And as a psychologist interested in people, interested in behavior, and interested in ongoing lives, the city is the context in which most of my experience has been developed. I love visiting other cities, but New York City is of special interest because of the way it's changed over my life. Um, so when 9-11 happened, I was in Boston. I was teaching at UMass Boston, um, still living in New York City, and had difficulty getting home. And I became convinced in the day after that this needed to be tracked. I was teaching in a conflict resolution program, a multidisciplinary program. and um, I wanted to understand what the conflicts and challenges and changes would occur in the future. And I started keeping track of New York Times articles on New York City after 9-11. I just wanted to have data that gave me a way to understand what could happen after an event such as that, which was clearly an event of enormous proportions. It was clear from the very moment I, I learned about it while I was still in Boston. And and when did you decide that this needed to be a book? Ah, well, the book. So 
I was collecting <laughs> these articles. There were quite a few thousand of them. And after six years stopped, because at that point, the articles had drifted off the first page of the New York Times, off the sections of the New York Times, and were in small articles toward the back. And I, and I felt like I had enough to have a sense of which spheres of life were very important to the public discourse. Um, so, um, when the, when the 10th anniversary was approaching, um, I decided to do a commemorative panel on the event. Um, based on the research I had been conducting, I asked several people to present because they were knowledgeable about the spheres that had emerged as really important spheres. So we, we held a symposium at the Graduate Center of City University of New York, advertised as widely as possible on the web, on the radio, invited anyone from CUNY in New York City to come. It was free. And the response to it was really quite remarkable. It was as if everybody there had, everybody there had lived through 9-11. It was only 10 years later. And yet everyone felt like they had a bit of tunnel vision that they had focused on particular aspects and not others, so that when somebody spoke, for example, about Islamophobia, they were thinking about some other problem. When somebody spoke about um, elevators and tall buildings, they had been thinking about something else. And the way that the symposium, which was about 10, 10 different talks, brought the many spheres that we had been studying together just struck people as so important and everybody leaving said this is so important and so we decided to, to do a book it just seemed that we could expand you know expand it to um, a few other spheres we had more time and to um to make it into something that would be a, a rich first hand historical document that would be of use to people in the future. Um, as some people said, a book like that would only become more valuable because the, the firsthand knowledge of the intricacies of the conflicts and the challenges and the changes, a lot of that gets lost over time. The stories become a bit more linear and the nuances of, of the challenges, I think, become um, less obvious. So in, in this kind of a book, we have... Um, the ability to understand psychology as it's lived by people in as in in different spheres of New York City, um, New York City's life, and the way that those spheres speak to each other in a kind of kaleidoscopic way is kind of beautiful because the issues are similar and different. And each one has, it's like a, uh, each one is like a strong thread in a tapestry. And the book contains chapters that examine the after effects of 9-11 from these various perspectives. And I want to name some of them. They include, of course, psychology, but also medicine, community advocacy, architecture, and, and several others. And so I want to make sure I understand the, the premise of the book. You're saying that you thought it was important to understand how 9-11 in New York changed, at least in New York City, changed medicine, changed community advocacy, how it shaped architecture for the future? Do, do am I understanding it right? I think it's more how 9-11 changed New York City. But New York City in these various spheres, 
So, for example, in the two chapters by the architects um, on developing on what happened at Ground Zero in terms of a master plan, which Daniel Liebskind wrote, and in terms of building the memorial, which Michael Arad wrote, we saw how the the event itself challenged them to rethink a very large area in New York, 16 acres, and how that would be then reconfigured and redeveloped in ways that were appropriate to the history of the site and, and as well as to its function, which is actually, I mean, it had been a center of finance before. So let's talk about that because one of the one of the chapters very much address or maybe more address what happened to the space where the attacks happened and all the debates that surrounded it first of all how how would you characterize some of the debates what were people arguing about when it came to what would happen to to that space uh well, there are many stakeholders. You know, there's in, in one of the chapters on conflict and change in the book, we describe the public voice and how the public voice uh, was very much a part of the planning initially. Um, there were huge um, groups of people meeting at Jacob Jabbit's Convention Center, which is a very large meeting space to discuss what they wanted. The Design proposals were vetted by citizen groups and the families of victims of the attacks, um, and so the, uh, the 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 stakeholders who were discussing what would happen to this space were incredibly vast and varied. They included the governor of New York and New Jersey, because the Port Authority of New York, which is New York and New Jersey. Um, owned that site. Um, there, you know, the publics that had uh, used the site as a business site, uh, the, you know, this transportation that goes through the site. So many people are involved in going to New Jersey through the tunnels and um, using the subway to other parts of the city. There, it's an endless number of stakeholders and everybody did want to have a voice. Ultimately, as we describe in the chapter on conflict and change, um, the, public, the public's voice faded over time and the stakeholders became much more politicians, designers, architects. And the talk about what would be there was in, uh, very prominent in the news for three years from 2002 to 2004. And there were questions about, you know, how long it was taking to clean up the site. It was the site itself became a focus of activity um, for thinking about what had happened. But, you know, that wasn't the only place that that 9-11 had an effect in New York City. It had a pervasive effect on many systems in New York. Um, it, uh, the employment patterns had changed. Um you know, in the beginning, many industries, uh, the garment industry in Chinatown, taxi drivers um, were, were very much hurt. Those were two two that were studied, were, were hurt by the disasters. But um, 
nine, that whole area of lower Manhattan has since undergone enormous change and has become a very expensive area, residential. And uh, it wasn't before. Before that, it was pretty much renters and not very expensive area to live in. So a lot has changed. Go ahead. Well, and I'm and I'm sorry. I was I was was just wondering of of all the things that have changed. I'm also wondering about the the psychology and the personality of the New Yorker. I I think you might agree, and and people people who would, our listeners would agree that New Yorkers you might the New Yorker has a particular kind of personality, and I'm wondering if in your observation not just as a researcher, but as someone who's lived in New York her whole life, do you think that 9-11 changed the, the personality of, of New Yorkers, changed the psyche of New Yorkers? Such a great question. You know, the, the way that people came together after the event was extraordinary. Everybody wanted to help, but so people all over the world wanted to help. And I think that after disaster in general, people are very generous and very concerned about others, which is a very beautiful thing. Um, I I think that there is a kind of a, a, a tenseness in New York. A few years ago, a plane flew a little too close um, in the air to the buildings in our airspace. It was an error, and. Everybody, it was just like, it was in the front page of the New York Times. So everybody was pretty freaked out by it. Just hearing that sound of a plane too close was not good. And there are moments that, that, that um, I was at 9-11, of course, this last September. And the way that, you know, people came together there, not only to honor the people who died on, on that day, but to, to to honor the people who died in the years since from um, exposure to toxins at the at the site, these were first responders of many many kinds. Um, not only fire and public safety, other kinds of public safety, but also construction workers, engineers. Um, many kinds of people were down at the site uh, to be helpful. Um, how New Yorkers have changed? Well, I think that. I think we have, you know, the United States hasn't had a, an attack on its soil in hundreds of, you know, it's hundreds of years and from another country. And, and, and we have lived through an, such an attack. It was, you know, thank goodness, very short lived, but it was deadly and uh, calamitous. And I think that people are different after that experience. They're, um, you know the research on PTSD. You know spoke about the declining, declining uh, intensity of PTSD over time in a in a in a wonderful chapter by researchers at Columbia University School of Public Health. Um, but for some groups, it declined less, and those were the first responders. And, it, and interestingly enough, was particularly high for non-traditional um, first responders. These were volunteers who came on their of their own reconnaissance. And the authors don't know the reason, but hypothesize that it might be that the traditional first responders who, for example, work for the Emergency Medical Service of New York City, um, had resources to enable them to recover and, and camaraderie, whereas people who came from other parts of the country and volunteered and come in may have not had that kind of support after. 
So just to be clear, you're saying that the research shows, and, and this is documented in your book, that not these non-traditional first responders, in other words, volunteers, maybe people who had come from another state, that they suffered, that they show more adverse long-term consequences compared to the more traditional first responders? Yeah. Well, I think by long-term um, negative consequences would mean that the PTSD didn't decline at the rate that it did for other um, vulnerable populations. I it's see. De it's declined less than it did and even declined um, less than for traditional first responders like fire, police, and EMTs. You know, for transparency, I moved to New York City in 2008 myself and uh, lived there for 10 years and, and actually just left New York uh, late last year. And my first job there in 2008 was as a pre-doctoral intern at Pace University Counseling Center, which is just blocks away from... Right there, right. It's from Ground yeah. Zero. And I remember when I arrived in New York and when I walked around the neighborhood, um, I mean, I knew even before getting there that it was it was downtown close to Ground Zero. But when I, I remember when I saw for myself the site at the time in 2008, it was really just a, a big pile of fenced off rubble. And right. it stayed that way. I remember it stayed that way for a long time. And I remember wondering then, it's something I still wonder about now. I remember, I remember wondering, well, why have they, why have they left it this way? What's going on? What's hold, what's holding things up? And as the years went by, and I continued living in New York, I, I, I feel like I too got used to this fenced off eyesore, really. And looking back on it now, I wonder how that affected the way that people registered and, and helped space in their mind for the events of 9-11, if, if we could have a site like this destroyed and it and, and have it take so long for us to put something back together to reconstruct something like how how did that affect people and did it say something about how we were processing that trauma yeah i think it speaks both to people and to the way that trauma affects sites and people and the interaction among them and this is like a fundamental, it's like a core theorem of Kurt Lewin, who talked about human behavior is a consequence of the people, of P for people and E for the environment. And here, you, what you're bringing up is exactly right, that there was, it, it was, it was hard, I mean, eight years, so in 2000, it was, it, that was not very long. It takes a long, long time to rebuild in cities. Um, you need agreement on what to build, who will build it. There's all the permitting processes. When I spoke to Michael Arad, who built the, the Memorial Plaza um, two years ago, he said it's still a construction site, but it's getting there. And there are parts that are still fenced off. Um, you know, um, Daniel Liebskind explained that some of the bills, some of the buildings planned for the master plan have not yet been built. So it's really going to take many, many years for that site to actually be complete. And it may never be, quote, complete if all the buildings aren't built or there are, you know, further complications. 
but it when it when it opened when the memorial opened you had to go through security to get into this site and there was only one entrance and now it's really in like an open park so it's quite different and i think it feels to people who work and live downtown now more like a space that's doing um tr- maybe a triple role of being an intensely um evocative memorial site almost a park where there are benches and trees and outdoor space and you can see kids playing there people talking having lunch so kind of a normal park in that way and then it's also um a work site for many people the buildings there are buildings that function as as work sites i i think as cities are complicated places and i think that the evolution of the site itself in some ways um isn't metaphor for the you know recovery of new york and as you point out the recovery is physical and it's psychological and the two are related uh, it's yeah i am also wondering about the the recovery process as it concerns intergroup relations i think we saw after 9/11 a rise in Islamophobia and almost like a, a a justification, a felt justification for it in some parts of this country that we now had reason to to be afraid of certain groups. Did that happen in New York? And and if so, how how was that dealt with? How how because New York prides itself and should be proud of how diverse it is. How did how did nine eleven affect intergroup relations, particularly around the the Muslim population, and how has it dealt with it ever since then in the long run? Yeah, it was pretty disastrous for the Muslim population. And there is some wonderful research on the effect on Muslim youth. One of the chapters in the book by Diala Shamas, who's um, worked with um, the CUNY Law, she's working at CUNY Law and the CLEAR Center, um, did an incredible study on... Muslim youth attending uh, CUNY campuses, and they the so what the New York City Police Department did after nine eleven was assume a federal role of of terrorist surveillance, and in the, in the book Charles Jennings, who's a, a public safety expert and professor at John Jay, um, describes that whole process and how that happened, and it was as he describes a form of overreach, um, and. People, you know, there were people who, you know, the students never knew who was an informer, who was not. It was quite traumatic to Muslim student associations, didn't know who was, was monitoring them, who was not. And, you know, for, the, for most of the students, it was a, um, a chilling time for them. And this is in the aftermath. This is the years that followed. In the immediate aftermath, there was a lot of anger uh, from irrational types. I mean, people who would get out of a car, walk up to a, 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 a taxi driver and punch him because he was wearing a head headgear. He was, you know, the one that they punched that I saw personally, which was just horrifying to watch, um, was Sikh and not Muslim. And had he been Muslim, so what? But there was, the, it, did, it didn't enrage people. And, you know, we know from history that people can become enraged at minority groups. And it, it's happened, you know, repeatedly. 
and it was an extremely unfortunate time. I felt that New Yorkers did come together for that. But of course, we, we're not, we're a heterogeneous group and different people have different um, feelings, attitudes, behaviors, a sense of values. And so um, it was a very difficult period for groups that were perceived to be Muslim. I know that um, oftentimes Muslim young women, or, or I just know it from, from what I've read, so, um, you know, did not wear the hijab because they didn't want to stand out. And this is, you know, really a terrible thing in a society that prides itself on pluralism. And in uh, the chapter on conflict and change, there's a description of the controversy that arose in 2010 over building a um, what was called the Ground Zero Mosque. And it was neither a mosque nor at Ground Zero. It was supposed to be a cultural center modeled on a, you know, YM or YW um, CA, which would have uh, community uh, classes, facilities, and also have, you know, a chance to have, you know, discussion groups and learning, and it would have some Islamic-related um, activities. So it would be very much like, you know, YWYH, you know, Young Hebrew, Young Christian Association. Um, and that that was pretty much supported in New York. It was supported by the people in the community. It was supported by the community board. It was supported by local people, supported by the mayor, but absolutely hated by uh, people, for example, in North and South Carolina. Uh, one of the, somebody running for, was running for Congress on a plank against the, that they call the Ground Zero Mosque and, you know, some right-wing politicians in Europe. It, you know, it, it I, I think that although, 9-11 brought out the very best in us in the way that we collaborate and care for each other in very important and deep ways. It also brought out some of the worst in how people um, became very fearful of minority groups in our midst and viewed them with suspicion. The fact that the New York City Police Department took that up and surveilled Muslim populations, you know, in mosques, in coffee shops, um, outside New York City, they didn't stop at the city city borders. Um, in some ways, was one of the more really unfortunate responses to nine eleven, and it lasted for years. And I think that the book is important. Well, did, did, did it, it end? end? Uh, I don't know. I mean, the the fact that this happened. No, but finish your well, thought, please. Um. Well, I was just going to say it was it was really one of the more unfortunate things. And one of the things that the book can do, I think, is to, as a kind of a, a lesson for future times, that if something happens, don't jump into, you know, blaming some group for our problems in ways that distract um, from the process of rebuilding and, and try to, you know, rebuild in constructive ways, not destructive ways. That was the end of the thought. Well, can you say more then about, because you, you do mention in the book how you intend this to be a kind of case study that other folks who study disasters or, or other cities or people who are trying to recover from one that, that they might learn from the experience of New York City. What what about the experience of New York City post 9-11 um, can be... What can folks learn from it that is generalizable to other cities facing similar kinds of disasters? Well, I, 
there are several things. There is very specific professional knowledge that people have gained in the aftermath. For example, in 2016, when um, Brussels was bombed, um, the occupational medicine doctors there called their colleagues in New York for advice on what to do. So that they had, uh, you know, in the chapter on health, you know, it, this is described. And the, there's a lot of knowledge in New York that can be used elsewhere. And I'm sure other people have called other people. I mean, there's many, there's much, much has been learned. But I think in terms of the politicians who pretty much um, set the tone in some ways for for um, our lives after disasters, we turn to them because they're the people who decide, you know, when the transportation will run, where it's safe to go, what communications are available. Um, that I think that, that in, my message for them would be to value community voice foster inclusion and be very transparent about decisions. You know, the, the tragedy of the health crisis afterwards that New York is still experiencing, um, um, people who were exposed here, of course there were people exposed from elsewhere who came here, um, is that there wasn't transparency early enough about what the um, dangers were, even though it was known what was in the substances, the toxic substances that people were inhaling and exposed to on their skin. Um, we told it was, in the beginning, they were told it's fine. You know, people who died there, you have a cough, you know, suck it up. But we do know now that people, you know, developed severe respiratory illnesses, cancers, and many, many, many people have died of these, these illnesses at this point. So, that, so, so you're, go ahead. You know, so I think that we, we need to rely on the decision makers to make decisions that are very, very cautious in the beginning. The precautionary principle is to take the highest level of precaution until you can be sure that you can bring it down rather than the opposite, which is assuming everything is okay. And then, you know, later on saying, oops, it wasn't, you know, apparently Oklahoma City, which had a, um, a, major bombing in years before that, which is ter- in, uh, an American terrorist, um, a lot of people were saved from toxic pollution because there was a rumor that there was a second bomb. And so a, a larger area was cordoned off. And had that happened in Ground Zero, had they cordoned off a large area, many, many people would have been spared exposure. So the precautionary principle just assumed the worst and then ramp it down as you get better information. We'll be much more protective of people. And we expect our officials to protect us. Well, Susan, we are almost out of time. But before we go, we would love to know what you're working on now or what you've got coming up next. My work is actually on conflict, which shouldn't surprise you, and also justice and the relationship between the two. And I'm working on a book on that topic because it consolidates the my entire professional career is on these two topics. So that's what I do in my spare time. And I'm still teaching, which I love. Well, I hope that when the new book comes out that you will be in touch and we would love to have you on the show to talk about that book. Oh, thank you so much. This is a pleasure. It's really wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's wonderful to speak with you. And again, I've been speaking to Susan Apatow, uh, author, co sorry, 
co-editor and contributing author to the book New York After 9-11. Thank you, Susan. Thank you so much.